When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Legendary singer-songwriter Jim Messina performs live at the Ram's Head in Annapolis, Maryland this Sunday night. He called in to discuss his journey from Buffalo Springfield to Poco to Loggins and Messina, including timeless hits like Danny's Song, House at Pooh Corner, and Your Mama Don't Dance. Jim Messina, hey, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. Good morning. How are you? Is it morning? I can't remember. I'm I'm in a room. <laughs> <laughs> it's morning. It's morning here uh, in the D.C. Maryland area. Uh, where are you at? Where's this room that that is so you know the shades are pulled so tight you can't tell whether it's day or night. <laughs> well, I, I think I'm in. Uh, I'm at the Westin Hotel, <laughs> but I don't know where I'm at because we. I got in. I was exhausted. They gave me a room key, and I went up and went to bed. And I'm waking up right now and speaking with you. So you don't but even know do what know town that. you're in. I'm not sure where I'm at, to be honest with you. Well, that, isn't that the life of a touring musician? <laughs> well, it is, it is. It's sad to say, but I have to let go of, of controlling some things in this business because if I tried to stay on top of everything, every moment, where I am, what I'm doing, I would go nuts. <laughs> well, that's okay. Even if you don't know where you are currently, we'll we know where you're headed, which is going to be the Rams head in Annapolis. Um, this that's exactly what's important. Exactly. So you'll be playing. Our listeners should come on out. It's going to be at the Rams head in Annapolis on Sunday, October 23rd, 7:30 p.m. Tell us about about this this current show, this tour you're on. Uh, is it is there anything new material you're working out? Is it any of the Loggins Messina, you know, classics? A little Poco? What we got? Well, I've got a great band with me right now. We, um, I mean, I've always had really good musicians with me, but I, I moved to to Tennessee, and most of my guys were either spread out in California or New York, and it was getting a little difficult to be able to try to rehearse and do the things. So over the last probably nine months or so, I've been working on getting a group of people who can do this material, and I have just some super players. I've got Jack Bruno on drums who used to, play for uh, Tina Turner. He's just such a great groove player. Um, I've got a young man who's who's um, about my son's age, 31, uh, on bass and vocals, and he's just super. I mean, just a great, great player. James Frazier's on keyboards. And I've taken um, a lot of the arrangements, since I only have one horn player, and that's Steve Nieves, uh, who's just, again, phenomenal percussionist, singer, and, and sax player. Uh, a lot of the arrangements have been, I've, I've brought them up to as close as I can get them to the original ones, especially with Loggins and Messina. Um, not having two horns makes it a little difficult, but I've arranged a lot of the horn parts to be played on a B3. So in the old days when I used to go watch 
people in, in LA at the, at, you know, like a trio, a, a, a B3 guitar player, you know, and a drummer, it sounded like there was 10 pieces coming out of them. So I've managed to get the arrangement so I can get as much as I can of the original parts. So we'll be doing everything from probably watching the river run in Pooh Corner, Danny song. We, we moved through that into some Poco stuff like um, Follow Your Dreams, uh, You Better Think Twice. Uh, I'm doing a tribute right now to Rusty Young because he passed this last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Kind Woman, because that was the first song I worked with him on and met him on. And then, uh, you know, we we do some country stuff, like listen to a country song, Holiday Hotel. I don't know if we'll be taking a break. Sometimes we break for intermissions so people can can do that wonderful thing they need to do. And then, um, but we'll be doing the trilogy. We'll be doing Be Free. We'll do Angry Eyes. Uh, Not Your Mama Don't Dance. Um, you Need a Manders. It moves from an acoustic evening into a country electric evening into really almost a Latin jazz with all the material that I've done over the years. Wow, that is quite a set list. You were, you're just rattling off, you know, some of the biggest hits uh, of all, throughout the entire music history of the last couple decades. Everyone's got to come check it out. Uh, well, whenever whenever I um, have someone as uh, iconic as yourself on on our radio station, I always love to hear sort of. Your origin story. I know you were born in in forty seven. What a good year, Robert Mitchum. Out of the past, that's a good year. <laughs> um, but uh, you split time. You were born in California, but you split time back and forth with in Texas too, right? Right. I was born in California, and I think I was about two and a half or three when uh, I, I went. I moved to Texas uh, with my mom and my stepfather, and I was there probably through first, second, and third grade. And then I went to stay with my dad uh, when I was in the fourth grade, which would have been in in Southgate, California, um, Linwood, Southgate, that area, Southern California. And then um, through the years, my parents kind of just um, between, you know, custody issues and uh, where I was going to be pretty much grew up in Southern California um, <clears throat> until I graduated high school. Um, and uh, even then, I you know, I, I moved to Hollywood. Uh, to try and have a career. So most of my time was spent in my 20s and 30s, really, in California. And I must say 40s and 50s, because it wasn't until about, um, golly, five years ago, I decided to move to Tennessee. Uh, and, you know, my grandfather was from Tennessee, and my mom and her, her mom was all from Texas. So, you know, I grew around, I grew up around a Southern family. And probably perhaps the reason why, you know, uh, country western music was in my life. My dad was a was a, a guitar player himself, had a little country western band when he was, you know, in the late 40s, early 50s. And so I, I grew up on my in my father's family of having, uh, you know, Spade Cooley, Bob Wilson, the Texas Playboys, Chad Atkins, Merle Travis, the Collins Kids, all that stuff. Johnny Cash was all part of the music, mainly Western swing. I hate to pull Johnny Cash out of that because that's really on my mother's side because my stepfather was from Arkansas. You know, they they were really into Johnny Cash and, you know, Hank Snow and Hank Williams and all that stuff. So there was quite a a cross-section of music uh, in my life. 
uh, not to mention the fact that I was raised in an Italian family, and every Christmas they'd pull out the mandolin and there'd be a polka bouncing around for a few hours. Everybody's jumping and jiving to that stuff. But um, yeah, I, I really had a, I had the perfect childhood to grow up and become who I have become. And uh, the good news is I had good parents and good standards. And, you know, they basically told me to keep my nose clean or I would probably die uh, at the hand of of the parents. So I I took that stuff seriously. So I I managed to get through life with drug drug free and uh, have my mind and my brain and thanks to good parents. Wow. Yeah. Sounds like a great upbringing and, and a great, you know, musical soundtrack bouncing around the walls of, of your childhood. I mean, man, Bob Wills and Hank Snow and you're, you're naming some legends. I'm loving it. So tell me about your, you know, I guess you're very well, of course, you did Buffalo Springfield. But even before that, tell me about the very first bit. What was it called? The Jesters? Yeah, I had a group <laughs> in high school. I was 15 years old called Jim Messina and the Jesters. And I started when I moved from Southern California to the Inland Empire, my parents uh, in, the, in the ninth grade took me out to live in, um, uh, golly, I guess it would have been Santa Barbara County, Riverside, that area, Grand Terrace. Uh, I was bummed out because I was living at the beach and I had all those beach bunnies and beach boys and all that stuff was my lifestyle. And I suddenly I was living in the land of the future farmers of America. and uh, did not relate to raising cows or chickens or ducks and all that stuff although i do now (laughs) right right uh uh, but anyway i i was bored and my grandma said hey there's a young kid at the end of the street um who who's plays saxophone maybe you should get together and maybe you guys can so i did that was david archuleta and uh that summer before i entered high school we we found a bunch of kids around that played music and we uh, managed to get a job at the um, the Grand Terrace Country Club, which was basically its members consisted of mainly Air Force Base folks, and uh, and uh, of course we all know that pilots and sailors, the only way they can keep their equilibrium is to have a little bit of alcohol in their diet so that they can make that balance. And of course, on the weekends, uh, pilots used to get up to like to go up there and have dinner and have a few cocktails. And so we would entertain their kids down at the pool house and uh, with music. And we were paid with Shirley Temples, which I, I thought was quite a treat in those days. <laughs> Man, you were getting hammered on Shirley Temples. <laughs> I was getting hammered on Shirley Temples. And, um, but anyway, that's where it sort of started. And then I went into high school and had a band all through high school. And eventually that band down there was called the, the Boutonnieres. And then we went to the Pendletons for the surf thing that was going on. And then we went to the Jesters. I don't know why that, that, that happened, but it happened. And, and, um, yeah, I just, I played, you know, pop music for us, you know, that was mainly surf music and, and the tunes that were, you know, that were happening uh, around the, the kids in our culture. But somewhere in there, somebody discovered me and decided they wanted to cut an album for Audio Fidelity. And at 15, I recorded an album called The Dragsters with Jim Messina and the Jesters. And oddly enough, that album came back around 
a year or so ago, it's become some sort of a uh, a cult thing in the surf world. And there's <laughs> even a I have what do they call it a, a a tribute band for Jim Messina and the Jesters out there. Wow. And so we, we, we got the folks to re-release the album, and uh, we, I actually sell it at the gigs. I think it's a fun little thing to hear. I mean, at 15 years old, you can certainly hear all the angst as a guitar player. That's cool. Especially they can, they can pick that up at your shows and get a taste of the early yeah. days. That's great. Yeah. Well, so tell me, how do you get from there to Buffalo Springfield then? Because obviously Springfield, I mean, iconic group, uh, um, they had what, maybe only like three albums or something like that, but you, you joined on for the last one, right? Last time around. Right. I was the recording engineer on their second album, Buffalo Springfield again. And Mm -hmm. then uh, when they came back, uh, they asked for me again to work with them. Uh, And during that period of time, they were having issues with their managers um, and producers. I guess they were both the same thing. Almond Erdogan at Atlantic had asked me if I would consider producing the band. And I had, you know, produced records before that that we had, you know, with my, my partner, Mike Duro. Um, and I said, yeah, you know, why not? She's, you know, it's not like, I mean, I liked the band. They were some of my favorite music that they created of all the groups that I was re- working with as an engineer. Yeah, of course. And then um, suddenly their, their bass player uh, decided to, he wanted to get himself busted, so he he called the police on himself, complaining about the neighbors. They came in, found drugs in his apartment. This <laughs> is Bruce Palmer. And, yeah, he busted himself, and they sent him back to Canada. And at that time, they wow. were auditioning for bass players, and I had I had the great fortune of of having Joe Osborne help me uh, on the bass guitar as I was building his studio with Mike Durow. So I'd I'd had some tips and got myself a really nice bass and so I I raised my hand for audition and got the job and so then I was working as their bass player producer and engineer um, and that was for the kind of the start to get me back into music because I didn't think I'd ever have an opportunity to be a studio musician I just wasn't good enough based on all the players that were happening in those days and. Uh, so I went into becoming a recording engineer and apprenticed under Mike Durow and eventually made my way to Sunset Sound, which is where I met the Springfield and did that second album. Before there, though, I think the way I, you know, it's an interesting, your question is interesting because it has another tier to it. In that oh, yeah. Let's let's was, tan- let's tangent, baby. I love it. <laughs> um, what happened was I was working at Sunset Sound and one morning I. I came in and the gypsy who was the manager of the studio said, listen, can you be in tomorrow morning around 10? I said, she says, I have a client coming in just a demo, um, you know, one voice, one guitar. And I said, well, yeah, I guess if I don't you know, leave too late tonight. So I show up the next morning at 830 and start setting up the mics. And I said, who, who's coming in today? And she said, well, it's David Crosby. David Crosby. I said, is that Bing Crosby's son? She goes, I don't think so, but don't ask. You know, one of those things, just don't ask. <laughs> so anyway, I set up a mic and all that stuff, and he came in finally, and he had this, looked like a little water tank in his hand. And I said, what's that? And he says, well, this is a lava lamp. And I says, well, what do you want me to do with that? And he says, I want you to just plug it in, and when I tell you, turn the lights out, and, and we're going to. So I plugged it in. I've never seen one before and it's hard to get hot and 
and the goo started to kind of go around on the inside of it. So anyway, finally his um, the person he was doing the demo with shows up, a woman. So we set up the mics and we you know we went through the whole thing, turned the lights out, and as we're going from song to song, I'm thinking, wow, these are these are really nice lyrics and yeah. and the woman was very pretty and uh, i i just got smitten and mesmerized all at one time over her and her music and so at the end of the session i i asked uh who's the producer on this and he goes oh that that would be me david crosby and of course i didn't ask <laughs> um and i said and who's the artist and he says it's Joni mitchell so i thought oh that's nice and put Joni wow. so we cut the her first demos that she then took to a and m and signed her deal on to uh, to begin her career, and it was it was wonderful because you know I mean I got a chance to see what I thought at the time was really a wonderful singer songwriter before me. I mean, I, I, you, as an engineer, you get so much stuff. I mean, I used to get Wadachi bands in there, you know, and they would just you know, I'd ask them to count off. They couldn't speak English. They go uh huh, and then. Am I ever going to edit this stuff? So I had all kinds of folks come in. So this was the one time at that point in time that I, I really thought she was fantastic. And it was great to hear an artist actually become successful, who, in my opinion, really deserved that success. Wow. So you got to see Joni Mitchell and there on the ground floor. And, and of course, David Crosby. I mean, was he in the birds at that point or was that before? I want to say he was tra- probably transitioning, you know, I'm not sh- quite sure because David, you know, David was the one that went to Neil and said, Hey, you know, I know this young engineer here that you might want to hire. So that's how I got right. a recommendation. But I, I think that David was sitting in with the Buffalo Springfield now and then because Neil would quit. And so he would come in and sit in. I don't really know that history. I wasn't uh I wasn't a his- interested in the history in those days. I was just sure. interested in getting my sessions done and get home, you know? Right, exactly. But either way, you know, so so basically just to bring it back around and, and to uh, underscore it for the listeners, they so you, you were engineer on the second Springfield album and then you actually joined the band uh, and even wrote a song uh, or two on, on last time around, right? You, you wrote care for your country day on there, but damn, I'm looking at the songwriters on this, on that album, Neil Young, Richie Fury, Stephen Stills, you, I mean, come on, that's insane. <laughs> well, it was, you know, it's just a really talented group of people. And, you know, I really, I really enjoyed, I mean, I met Neil first when I first came in and I thought he was the producer of the band on the second uh, second time around. Excuse me, uh, Buffalo Spring again is what it was. Buffalo Springfield again. Yes. And um, you know he's very professional, and I always got along with him very well. He always seemed to know what he was looking for and what he didn't. He would certainly ask. Uh, Stephen, on the other hand, was you know was more of the artist, uh, you know, uh, ready to play, impetuous, wanted to get to something plugged in and playing is immediately if not sooner uh wish he was more than seemed like the the nervous cat on the tin roof wanting to know when he was going to get in and what you know it was just uh a very interesting group of people but very very talented uh, and each one requiring a different element and type of attention in order to keep things moving 
Oh, absolutely. Well, thanks for such a such a deep, deep dive into the the Buffalo Springfield days. That's great. Well, we actually we had Richie Fury on um, on the same show a couple a couple months ago. Um, so oh, he told us all about, you know, the transition into Poco. But in case our listeners missed that, you know, it's in our archives. But if they're listening to this, let's hear let's hear uh, Jim Messina's take on it. So how do you and, and Richie Fury spin out of uh, well, I guess Springfield sort of disbands and you guys are like, well, what are we doing now? And, and you form Poco or how did that come about? Well, pretty much. I think you got the, the, uh, uh, the construct of it. it uh, from my point of view, sitting behind my eyeballs, um, we, we knew that the group was going to, to disband. And I remember it was in a taxi cab that I recall that I asked Richie, I said, what are you planning on doing after this? And he said, I just, I really don't know. And I said, well, um, would you maybe want to form a group? And he says, maybe, I don't, I, I don't know. And I said, well, you know, you've, you've written songs like um, Kind Woman and you've written Child's Claim to Fame. You seem to be moving in a, in a more country vein. I said, I don't think we'd have much luck moving in a folk rock direction, but perhaps maybe if we, you know, did more country rock as opposed to what we were doing when, with Buffalo Springfield, it might, it might work for us. And he said, well, you know, I'll think about it. And so, you know, we both, we both had that on our mind, but it wasn't, we were still in Springfield at that time. And I had just gotten back from uh, New York with Richie uh, and we had recorded Carefree Country Day and Kind Woman. I can't remember the other tunes we did, but um, I, I just d- didn't, what happened is we, the guys didn't show up for their sessions. You know, Ahmed had asked Neil and Steven and Dewey and the two of us to go to New York and get these songs recorded because they weren't getting into the studio like they should be. So while we were there, uh, I realized Neil didn't get on the plane and um, Steven did, but he kind of got lost down in, uh, down in the village on session day. And uh, Dewey, you know, as most people know, he's a very spiritual guy and has a tendency to indulge in the spirits and as a result came in two-spirited to sit on the chair so that wasn't usable uh so Arif Arden said listen I'll, I'll help you out I'll get you the best you know cats in in New York so he did and so we were sitting there recording these songs kind one for one and uh I didn't realize that the best cats in New York were all jazz cats. And it was a record I was imagining. So we get back to LA and I, I told Richie, I said, we need to do something to this record to, to make it feel more like Buffalo Springfield. So I had suggested that we put a steel player on there, like Red Rhodes or Buddy Emmons or, or Sneaky Pete, somebody like that. And our guitar tech at the time, Miles Thomas <clears throat> suggested that um, he had a, a friend, a musician in, in uh, Denver that he knew that was a steel guitar player. He was rusty and uh, was about our age, and perhaps uh, we might consider bringing him out. So we decided to do that. We brought Rusty out, and uh, he, uh, on the on the trip out, his, his steel, which was just a, a phenomenal steel, it was all steel rods and you know, just a well-manufactured uh, instrument, got dropped off the plane and it busted. So when we got into the studio and found that out to be the case, I had mentioned that Stephen had bought a 
steel guitar when we were out on the road and it was it was here because he wanted to try and play it so we pulled it out it was not a very good one it was not as expensive as as rusty's worked backwards worked on cables instead of rods but rusty didn't complain he's got it set up and did what he was supposed to do and we made a couple of passes and um i looked at Richie and I said, wow, I said, you know, this guy is really good. And maybe this is what we need to think about if we're going to create that group that we were talking about. So in my mind, it, it all started really at the Buffalo Springfield session with Rusty. He and I having had that conversation subsequent to which we began to, uh, when the Springfield broke up, we began to pull those elements together. Uh, Stone Country Band was Ricky Nelson and uh, Randy Meisner was playing in that band. And we we worked to try to get his interest to uh, become a part of it. And Rusty knew George from from um, Bonsai Creek that was in his band in Denver. So we brought him out. And and uh, that was really the beginning of of, uh, of Poco. I had. Uh, I had a number of relationships, having worked in engineering and as a producer, I got some free studio time so we could get some recording done uh, so that we could submit it to um, Atlantic Records. And that was sort of the the genesis of how it all sort of began. Wow. Thank you so much for another. We went You went so deep into Springfield and into the formation of Poco and how that went. That's, that's fantastic. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Well, um, you've been generous with your time, um, but I, my listeners will kill me if we at least don't go into Little Loggins and Messina stuff. So tell me about how, you know... I know there was Clive Davis involved, um, Columbia. I'm well, actually, it's kind of similar to what you were saying about how you started with Springfield as an engineer and then joined the band. It's similarly, right? You weren't you originally? You were gonna just produce Kenny Loggins, and then you and Clive Davis were like, "Well, why don't you? Why don't you sit in with them?" Sorta. Uh, <laughs> Let's hear your version. <laughs> well, what happened is I was producing the last Poco record. Uh, uh, it was around July. We were doing uh, Deliverance. And I was asked by uh, Don Ellis, who eventually went to work. Actually, he might have been working at that point as a talent uh, and, and talent for Clive Davis, um, artist development, I guess they used to call it. He said he had a friend uh, who he'd worked with at Discount Records named Dan Loggins, who had a little brother that that they would wanted to get some music to me to listen to some tapes. And I said, well, not now, but, you know, when I get back. 
I'm right now pushing this record and I was trying to train uh, Paul Cotton. He was writing with me, staying with me in the rooms as we were traveling on the road so I could help him learn his parts because I was going to be leaving at the end of the at the end of the year. But when I finally got back, uh, you know, Kenny called me and and uh, said that uh, he was told that I you know, would, would like to meet with him. I said, sure. So I invited him over for, for dinner. And, uh, when I opened the door, I saw this tall, lanky guy with a part in his hair and braces on his teeth and a beard. And I thought, oh, wow, this is interesting. And, uh, I said, so let's listen to some songs. And I, I said, can I hear your tapes? And he says, well, I don't have any tapes. And I said, well, what about, uh, how about just bringing your guitar? I don't own a guitar. And apparently in his book, he mentions that he did own the guitar, but he was embarrassed to bring it in. So anyway, um, we sat and we talked and I said, well, look, I, I think what we need to do is uh, hear what you do. And so I pulled out a guitar and gave it to him and asked him to sing some songs uh, into my tape recorder that was there in my recording room. And so he sang Danny's song, House of the Corner, Behivala, a couple of other songs that we'd never recorded. Um, I found him to be very personable. And at the end of the evening, I said, good night. And I sat down with my wife and she says, what do you think? And I said, wow. I says, he's, he's got a very, he's got a talented voice, but most of this stuff is folk scenes. We've all folk songs. We've already been there, done that, you know, with Peter, Paul and Mary and Bob Dylan and the, the lot. I said, I don't know. I just don't know what to do. So I decided to spend more time with him. I had already gone through Andy Williams. I, I, that I can't do. He's, I'm not the right producer. Olivia Newton-John was a wonderful artist, but again, needed a different person than myself. I, I felt Dan Vogelberg had met with me and I, was, I had seriously considered doing him before uh, Kenny. But when he, when I asked him, why do you want to, you know, why are you choosing me to produce a record? He says, well, cause I want to make a Pogo record. And I went, Oh dear. <laughs> I said, you know, Dan, I said, I never made more than $125 a week in that band. I said, it was too rock for country radio and, you know, and, and too country for rock radio. And I said, I just cannot do that again. You're going to need to find somebody else to make that record. So Kenny was about nine months into my deal with CBS and I hadn't done anything really except reject stuff. And, you know, the more time I spent with him, I realized that, you know, he did have a, a, a desire to do something other than folk music and and uh, started listening to some of the demos that he'd created for ABC Wingate. Uh, and he'd love, because of his voice, he, he'd love to, if someone say, you know, we need a Leon Russell song, he's so great because he could make his voice sound like Leon Russell. Or if they wanted to hear an Elton John song, they could do that. And I thought, wow, if he can do that, uh, then he can certainly find his own voice and we just need to get the material. Long story short, we finally got to the point where, you know, I accepted it, but he didn't have a band. He didn't have a manager. He didn't have an agent. He didn't have an attorney. And in order to make this record, he would need all of that. Plus he would need a band to be able to go out and promote the record. So I began putting the band together for him, which was Merle Briganti and Larry Sims, who were in the Sunshine Company. They opened up for Poco, which is why I knew them. Al Garth lived below me um, in, a, in a house apartment that my wife and I lived upstairs in. And he, I would hear him play sax and violin. John Clark was about 17 when we met him. 
Uh, we had to get his parents' permission to even get him out on the road. Michael Lamartian was a friend of Kenny's. Kenny brought Michael into the project, although he did not want to be on the road. Uh, he was willing to help us get the arrangements together. So a long story short, by the time it was, you know, I had cut this album in demo form maybe two times after maybe a, a, you know nine months of, of doing it, uh, I, I realized that the only way in my opinion, it was my opinion, that he was going to be successful on this venture was that he needed to be out on the road and he needed someone to help him walk through all of this because he just was not experienced. So I suggested by this time, you know, he'd been borrowing my guitars and I'd been giving him material of mine, uh, peace of mind and songs like that, listen to a country song. I thought perhaps maybe we, sh we should discuss the idea of me sitting in with him on this record. I would take some tunes, some of the ones that I wrote, give him, give him some of the songs that I wrote, um, and then be there for him as we were on the road and, and introduce to him, you know, my audiences, which at that time would have been Buffalo Springfield and Poco. Yeah. And I thought it was a great, a great way to create an entree for Kenny Loggins to begin his solo career. And, uh, not to mention, it was just, a, it was just, yeah, it of course, launched his solo and, and then you did your stuff too. But it was a, it rolls off the tongue. Loggins and Messina. I guess it could have been Messina and yeah. Loggins, but Loggins and Messina, it rolls off the tongue a little better. <laughs> Iconic. Well, <deal. laughs> when, when I went to Clive to bring up the idea, he did not like the idea. And uh, really, he didn't want to see, he didn't want to see the group come out with a record and then have it break up. And in his mind, if I was with them, I'd be part of the group. And if I leave, then I'm breaking up the group. Hmm. So we, we, we went back and forth on that for a while. And finally I said, you know, I, if, if you would just consider the fact that there've been a number of artists throughout the years who have, who have sat in, you know, uh, on an album, Stan Getz, Charlie Burke, you know, Leon Russell, Joe Cocker. I mean, it, it, it doesn't bust the bands up. What it does is it helps to solidify them and promote them. And that's all I want to do is to see this record get promoted. So it has an opportunity to sell. And eventually he, he agreed in, uh, to it. And then when it was so successful, he came back and said, would you consider, you know, working with the group uh, as a duo? And I said, well, you know, that really, that really depends on Kenny. You know, this is his, his start, his career. And, and See what he thinks. So he came back and said, you know, Kenny's agree up show, you know, I'd like to call it Messina and Loggins. And I said, No, 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 I, I do not want to do that. I want it to be Loggins and Messina. Because my intent here is is the same. I don't want to stop producing records. I want to make sure that whatever we do here, you know, he gets he gets the proper credit and to give him the proper headlining that he's gonna eventually need. Well, that's very so, selfless of you. Give, give him the rub there and, and the lead in the in the name there. Well, that's that was the intention. You know, I mean, if I if I if I was considering, uh, you know, if I, if, if I was going to consider my own career as an artist, I would have probably agreed with Clive with, with <laughs> easily. But uh, I just felt that was the right way to do it. And there's many people that would have jumped at that and taken the selfish route, but you didn't, sir. And that I think that speaks a lot to to your character. Not to mention, you guys did some great songs. If you have a second, I'd like to drill down on on Danny's song. You said you he I guess he brought that to you and had already written it, but it wasn't it. You said Danny was his brother, right? He wrote that about what, like his nephew being born or something like that. Um, I think so. I mean, I 
he wrote it um, um, to his brother about his brother. There was another writer on there, Dan Lottemoser. I've never, I don't know how much he contributed. Okay. Uh, there were a lot of verses at one point in time, but uh, initially, the song, as I understand it from Kenny, was was about his brother, and it's just one of those songs that everybody just loves it. I mean, it just resonates in such a great place, uh, and it is truly about the song, not the arrangement, you know, not anything other than, you know, a very sweet song that Kenny sang. And I, and I believe uh, Anne Murray did it as well. And it was very, very successful for her. Actually probably more successful for her than us because it was never released as a single. Um, but it was certainly, it was certainly on the sitting in album, a highlight of the album because that whole album was, was produced for people at home. It was never produced for radio. Right. It was made so you could put it on, listen to both sides and feel like you've just gone to a movie. Exactly. And it's, uh, it, but it's, it's one of those songs that, you know, even if you found a, a younger generation and, you know, you could be like Danny's song, people would be like, wait, like, you know, a younger kid might be like, what's Danny's song. But then all you got to say is even though we ain't got money, they'll go, I'm so in love with the honey. Like everyone knows that call and, and response almost nowadays. Well, you know, what's really interesting about that. My daughter was three years old when we went out in 2009 and uh, we came back and she had been on, you know, every, every, every stage, that Kenny and I performed on and she was on the bus. I had a bus at the time. So we came back and we were, we were sitting in the living room and you know, I said, uh, Josie, I said, uh, did you like being on the road? She went, yeah. And I said, what was your favorite song? Hoping she'd say one of mine. Um, oh, I like Danny's song. <laughs> I said, do you remember any of the words? Yeah. I said, can you sing it? And she goes, yeah. And I said, we'll sing it. So she says, even though we got honey, I'm so in love with your money. And I went, <laughs> she flipped uh -oh. it. <laughs> she flipped it. I said, honey, you're learning, you're learning the ways of the the world a little too soon <laughs> <laughs> that's great well you know what with the honey maybe she was thinking of house at Pooh corner you know maybe she was doing Pooh bear with the honey pot or something <laughs> yeah, yeah you know kids get that stuff mixed up <laughs> wait so she did she, i would have guessed that would have been her favorite you know with christopher robin and that kind of children's stuff did she like that one or she's more of a danny song fan <laughs> now i asked her the question that was her answer let's put it that way <laughs> well tell me about the creation of Pooh Corner then really quick before we run here because that's a really iconic one as well well that song was originally recorded by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band before I met Kenny another great group and they, and they had a, a much different version on it this was um, kind of an up-tempo pop with a wah-wah pedal kind of thing and in the process of, of trying to find Kenny's space musically I felt that song needed to have a different take on it um, I felt that it needed to be more childlike and more um, accessible uh, on an ethereal level so that it had more dreamlike and that maybe it would have a, a better how does to say a better perspective in terms of the of the depth of what he was trying to talk about 
So uh, I sat down with him and we started playing around with doing it in a more classical Baroque way. Um, in fact, I even had him sit down and start learning some Baroque uh, parts where they were counterparts parts on the solo, for instance. And if you listen to the original, there's uh, classical guitars playing in there and that's Kenny and I, and I'm bringing it into a whole other dimension. In those days, you know, Michael Amartian, as I said, was the keyboard player on it. There weren't really any synthesizers and they were just starting to come out with different kinds of pianos that, that uh, sounded different. They, they were more, golly, the, they were more um, sine wave oriented, you know. Um, and there was a, an instrument called a uh, farfisa and it had the sound on it and um, and it, and it sounded like sleigh bells, dun, 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 you know, that kind of a thing. And we, we added our percussionists actually on sleigh bells <laughs> to give that feeling that it could be winter, right? Nice. And and again, I love making my arrangements. I, I like having some sort of depth to them in terms of, you know, connotating images that may or may not be in the, the theater at the time. So... We worked that arrangement out to really be more childlike, to be more ethereal, to have a, a quiet feeling to it, so that it's something you could play, uh, uh, and, and and people would get a different sense than the, than the original way. And it turned out to be actually be a really, really great arrangement for that song for him. Um, so I, I was very proud of how that. And he and he worked he really worked hard to get the guitar parts the way they needed to be, and um, it, it just turned out really great. It really did. And you know what? It, it it goes both ways because, you know, you, you did a great cover of the nitty gritty and, and made that your own. But then with, you know, like with your mama don't dance, you bet you would have, uh, you know, Elvis, you would have poison, you know, everyone would cover your version. So, you know, you, you right. be on both sides of that cover, cover dance. Um, mm -hmm. But why do you think that song, why does, why do you think your mama don't dance works so well? Is it just because everyone, every young listener can relate to that, that gen generation gap, you know, your, your parents just don't understand kind of thing I, I think that's exactly it and regardless of whether Logs Messina recorded it or or Poison that song has been recorded by so many artists in so many other countries and I, I, I can't think of any other reason other than the generation gap really I mean was it was it Socrates that said you know this generation of kids just do not appreciate their parents so, you know I mean it's been going on for a long time right Man, Socrates had it all figured out long ago. Um, awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. You've been really generous with your time. Um, we thanks for covering all, all those different iterations. And we there's there's so you much bet. of your solo career even after Logins and Messina. But well, I guess we'll, we'll let's let's um sort of round it out this way just to bring it full circle. Like, what was were you? Was it freeing to be to find you know go off and do your solo stuff after that and and at the same time how how excited were you that, to watch Kenny Loggins you know you said you want you wanted it to be a launching point for him to begin with the duo to go on and do his own stuff but was uh you know was it rewarding to watch him you know have all that success with Caddyshack and Footloose Top Gun <laughs> and all that stuff well. Yes, because I mean, the intent was to, uh, at the time, I mean, you have to understand that my job with Kenny as a producer was to work to make him successful. And we can only, you know, we can only do so much. And in, in the beginning, you know, I, 
I, I needed him to be successful for him as much as I needed him to be successful for me. And the only way to do that, in my opinion, was to take the tools that I had at hand and deliver to get him out there, promote him and get him in front of the stage. Afterwards, you know, we, there's there's always going to be a point in time when people move on. I mean, it's like the Springfield. They moved on. Poco moved on. L&M will move on. Um, I find it to be a credit that the people that I work with go on to become successful or continue to be successful. Otherwise, I, I would have been a, you know, a, a bump in the road uh, that would have deferred that. That, that wouldn't be quite a, a very good compliment. But when it comes to, to my own career, I had not really thought about having one even after Kenny. I was sick from traveling. I couldn't digest food. It was just too much stress between Springfield Poco and Loggins and Messina, I took I took a break there for about three years to just get healthy again. And um, by the time I started my career, music was beginning to change pretty drastically. And um, um, and I just did not see doing some of that music myself. It just didn't didn't fit with me. And some of the pop stuff, the disco stuff, that was just not in my wheelhouse nor did I want it to be. And I think, I think becoming a pop artist and competing in that, you have to decide, do I want to try and be hip every time I make a record? And, you know, that's, that's an interesting goal to, to shoot for. In Kenny's case, he has a, an incredible voice that, you know, he could do anything. And it was fortunate that um, during that rough time for many of us, you know, there was a situation that was going on with the record companies that they had all dropped their promotional chains because independence had become so popular. And it meant they didn't have to, you know, pay salaries. They didn't have to pay office space. They didn't have to do a lot of things that was expensive. And by having independent uh, promotion involved, it gave them the opportunity to focus on other things. And But little did they know that the that the government would have a Senate investigating committee start looking into a number of these folks from for misbehaving. <clears throat> so those of us who released uh, records in the the late 70s, 70, well, more, more like the maybe early 80s, I think, 82, 83, um, there was a lot of stuff going on where we, we didn't get promoted on our records. My solo records did not get promoted because of those Senate investigating committees, as did Patrick Simmons. I think Michael McDonald had released some stuff during that point in time and all of our records that we released they they they, they just get lost and uh it can be very devastating you know to your career and, and keeping your audience up there so um it doesn't matter <laughs> how good your records are at times if you don't have the right promotion behind them mm-hmm. and fortunately the the movie industry has never had the uh, cuffs put on in terms of how much they spend to promote you know, a, a film. So to have a good uh, song in a film that uh, that's being heavily promoted uh, by the movie uh, company is always a great advantage, I think, to any artist. Um, there's so many artists. I mean, I loved Tina Turner was on a film. I can't remember what it was. Uh, I wanted to say it was a 007, but maybe not. Um, but hearing these fantastic voices with their records associated with these movies really, really helps an artist in their career. And I think that um, Kenny was fortunate to have the, 
the good success of having some good movies, some good promotion, and that helped keep his career alive. And having a great voice certainly was uh, the, the bigger part of it. Were you talking about Goldeneye with the the Bond movie? Was that the one? I think so. I remember her voice being in the James Bond movie, and and, and I I remember just becoming more acquainted with her as an artist. And then I began to look at her history more. And 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 then I think I don't know if it's before or after, but I remember what what's got love got to do with it. Of course. And, uh, what a record that was with her voice. Yep. Which which also became a movie. It all ties into each other. <laughs> but uh right. hey, thanks, thanks so much. I, I had no idea we would go, you know, forty five minutes, almost an hour together. This is fantastic. I could keep talking, but I know you're 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 touring and, and busy, but <laughs> I love I've well, I, I gotta- could sit and hear these stories all day. <laughs> I gotta have breakfast pretty soon because I'm sitting here like a bird eating pistachios trying to make my stomach come man we couldn't even we couldn't even hear that we can't hear the munching of the pistachios you hit it pretty well but uh yeah we'll let you run before your stomach eats itself but (laughs) um everyone uh check out jim messina at ram's head in annapolis uh this sunday october 23rd 7 30 p.m uh get your tickets now hey thank you so much for for doing this this was fun my pleasure and uh we'll have the full band there playing all of these songs that i talked about um so it, it should it should be very um pleased with with what they hear awesome well we really really appreciate it uh well we'll see you out there uh in annapolis we can't wait all right buddy take care all right, bye thanks so much for listening to beyond the fame with jason fraley our theme music is scott buckley's clarion remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear we'll see you next time I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.